rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity you're listening to the Restorative Justice Ministry for the Catholic Diocese of Austin. We have with us today Renee Brown, Director of Counseling Services for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, and Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, our Coordinator of Pastoral Care for the Incarcerated who live in Gatesville in our Restorative Justice Ministry. I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin also engaged in restorative justice ministry. And we're in our fourth session of five today on trauma and sexual abuse. I do want to alert our uh, parents who may have children that are within uh, earshot of this broadcast that uh, today we'll be touching on some sensitive matters that have to do with childhood sexual abuse. And so uh, you might want to monitor our content in case it's something that's too mature for any children in the room. And for any of our adult listeners, as this is such a common uh, problem and uh, uh, issue for folks, if we get into topics that uh, start to get to where you're uncomfortable, please give yourself permission to uh, to uh, turn us off or, or exit the room for a moment and uh, allow yourself that, that grace. So uh, today, Renee, let's start off with what is the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse and what constitutes childhood sexual abuse? Well, I found this uh, statistic amazing, actually, sadly amazing, but it says every nine minutes, a child is sexually assaulted in the United States. Every nine minutes. And 93, uh, 93% of children know their perpetrator. Um, and so many perpetrators of sexual abuse are in a position of trust or they're responsible for the child's care. So it's like um, a teacher, family member, relative, you know, something like that, right? And so I found this um, just really sad, you know, that every nine minutes a child is being sexually abused. And I would imagine for so many of our listeners that that is something that they've experienced, you know, growing up is childhood sexual abuse. And so, you know, I, I love the definition Um I went on to several different uh, websites where they uh, work with people who've been sexually abused. So one is called RAIN, uh, R-A-I-N-N, and they do a lot of work with uh, children that are have been sexually abused and survivors, adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And, and so this article, I have another article by Hall and Hall. Um, and it talks about there's many forms of childhood sexual abuse, right? And so it can involve like seduction. From, you know, a relative, a, a family friend, or even a stranger. And it can sometimes sexual abuse can be hard to define because it can, there's various variations of it. Uh, but typically the way to think about it is sexual abuse occurs when occurs when one person dominates and exploits another by means of sexual activity or suggestion. So when you think about children, it's any sexual act that's overt or covert between a child and an adult. And this can be an older child, right? So, you know, 12, 13, they know what they're doing. Um, and where the younger child's partition, uh, participation is obtained through seduction or coercion, right? So maybe they've been coerced into doing this. Um, it can look like pornography. Maybe somebody's allowing this child to watch pornography. It can be actual touch sexually. It can be penetration. 
but it can also be those pieces that are of pornography that's, you know, put in front of kiddos, or it can even be like making comments, you know, like, um, wow, you've got a nice butt, you know, or, oh, you're, you're already getting your boobs. You know, even those comments can be sexually abusive to people. Um, and even just some TV programs and movies can be uh, sexually uh, suggestive. Subject, thank you. Suggestive for, for kiddos. Yeah. What are the effects of childhood sexual abuse for adults, right? So some of the uh, things that people will often see from adult survivors is um, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, um, people with um, eating disorders, maybe people who have uh, challenges with relationships, um, relationships in that attachment, you know, connecting with people. Um, It can even go into like the intimacy pieces as well. You know, and intimacy doesn't have to just be sexual in nature, but just that ability to be alone with somebody, to be able to connect with them on this deeper level. Uh, Survivors of childhood sexual abuse often have challenges with connecting and attaching to people. And they also will typically carry a lot of guilt um, and maybe uh, self-blame and shame. Um, I don't think that I've ever worked with anybody that was sexually abused as a child that did not in some way blame their self. Now they could always, they'll always tell me, well, it was, it was my uncle's fault. It was dad's fault or whoever, but there is a part of them that takes on this self blame as well. And they'll feel guilty, you know, and they feel shame uh, for what's happened as well. Also, you'll see maybe for people, higher levels of depression and sadness. Um, Of course, like we talked about earlier, those somatic pieces where they have a lot of maybe body, uh, they feel it in their body where they have uh, breathing issues, heart, you know, palpitations and stuff. This can be something that they experience all their life. And so I did not even think about this until recently. Really, it was when I was putting these together. But... I was sickly a lot when I was like in first and second grade. And even in doing all of my work and healing, I didn't really put that part together that so much of my being ill in first and second grade came after I had been sexually abused by an uncle, right? So my mom is constantly taking me to the doctor and they're like, well, we don't, I mean, she seems okay, but, you know, I just felt tired all the time and I felt sick all the time and I would get sick a lot and you know, after reviewing this, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's probably what it was was from. So people may also um, be involved in denial. You know, like uh, I can remember uh, telling a few people, very few people on knew that I was sexually abused. But the few that did, I was like, it was no big deal. I got over that years ago. Right. But the reality was I had not. I never worked on it. I just pushed it down. I didn't deal with it. I did have anxiety. And another piece that will often happen to is difficulty learning, right? Like I am always very amazed and and somewhat proud that I have a master's degree, y'all, because I could not read well <clears throat> until I was in sixth grade. And I had to have like extra 
tutoring. So it also can affect people developmentally, you know, with learning and education. And often what would happen at school is, you know, I'd be sitting in class and they would tell my mom, oh, she was just daydreaming. And what they didn't really know is I was disassociating, which we've talked before a little bit about. But in disassociation, you can just disconnect from yourself, so to speak. And what would happen is when things were like, let's say I was having trouble learning something in class. Um, instead of like, because I was very shy, instead of raising my hand, and I didn't want to ask for help over and over because that was humiliating. That was shameful for me, right? So it went back to really being sexually abused, but I felt shame that I couldn't learn like the other kids. And so instead of um, asking for help, I would disassociate because it felt so stressful for me not to understand what was going on. So that's to say that some of these effects, it's not just the shame and the blame, but It's so many things, the emotions, and then also this educational development area as well. Problems with relationships. I was very shy. I did not have a lot of friends. It was really hard for me to connect with people. I didn't feel safe around a lot of people. I wanted to be with my parents a lot. I was very much a homebody, but that's because that's where I felt safe. And then some people may um, experience sexual problems. And for some people, it can look like, Um, They may become sexually promiscuous in a way. And then there's some people who are very repressive of that. Like they don't want to be sexual at all. It feels it feels very bad for them or they feel, you know, a lot of shame for that. Um, Body image problems, um, especially for women. There's a lot of parts of being maybe um, uh, they're really caught up in appearance and maybe they suffer with obesity too. There is like some information that, that a lot of people will overeat to make themselves unattractive to others. So that was very interesting to me. Um, and just a variety of, you know, feeling unsafe, having nightmares, having flashbacks, a variety of feelings. I, I was thinking about this the other day too, bless my dad's heart. You know, I would think I heard somebody outside a lot and bless his heart. He'd go outside with his, you know, you know, in his robe and stuff and be looking around and he'd come back in, Renee, nobody's out there. But, you know, I would be fearful at night and have a lot of nightmares. And so um, I can remember that. And even as an an older person, I would have a lot of repetitive uh, dreams that would reoccur a lot with themes. Um, So that could be something as well. So those are just some of the effects, uh, troubles with boundaries. We've talked about boundaries before in some of these sessions. And so um, that's that's very prominent for people who are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. They often have difficulty, you know, establishing boundaries with others and maintaining those boundaries with people. So you've been talking about effects of childhood sexual abuse for, for adults. What's the difference between that and the impact that childhood sexual trauma has on people? So when we think about, you know, the common types of childhood trauma, you know, we're looking at, you know, like abuse and neglect, right? We're looking at family violence. So, you know, for some of those that are that are listening, maybe you weren't uh, abused, you know, But if you're witnessing family violence, if you're seeing your dad or mom hit each other and yelling and there's constant chaos, that's that's trauma, Uh, school violence. And that doesn't have to be a school shooting. There's a lot of schools in certain areas, right, of our state that there's a lot of violence in school where you're seeing fightings and drugs and all kinds of things. That's traumatizing for people. Um, If you had a parent and I don't think we've ever talked about this, but if you grew up with a parent 
who had mental illness, right? Or maybe you grew up in a situation where you were the you were parentified. You were being the parent. Maybe you had to care for a parent due to health problems, or maybe you had a parent that was dysregulated and disconnected, and you were helping raise siblings and cook dinner for them and all sorts of things, right? That's traumatic. Children should not have to parent parents. So it's very traumatizing to have five- and six-year-olds, you know, caring for parents. Or if you have that parent that wants to talk to you about everything, that can be traumatizing, right? Because parents and children are not friends until until way later in life. If I'm eight, I should not be hearing about what's going on with your boyfriend and that boyfriend and your other boyfriend. No, I'm not your confidant. I'm your child. Um, natural and man-made disasters, wars, terrorist attacks, discrimination can even be traumatizing for people. Um, refugees and, and extreme poverty can be traumatizing. If my basic needs aren't met, that's trauma, right? So when we look at some of the impacts due to trauma, you know, um, like we talked about before, those developmental pieces for school, right? So people may have language delays. They may have problems with problem solving, poor academic achievement. This is something you may have experienced later in life, sleep disorder, eating disorders, a poor immune system, right? You're sick a lot. Um, this person may end up with a shorter lifespan. Um, there's even research that says people who have experienced childhood trauma may have a smaller brain size and their brain capabilities may be be lessened than the normative person. Um, their ability to respond to stress may be impaired. They may not have those tools to to deal with stress and chaos. Um, and interestingly here, it talks about like changes in even the way that our genes, you know, our DNA, the way that that's constructed, they now know that some trauma will to affect gene, your the way that your DNA is. Um, and of course, when we look at behavior, you know, if you're looking at yourself today and you've been listening to this, you know, if you find that you have poor emotional, you know, regulation, if you're not able to self-regulate well, if you act out sexually, um, maybe if you have drug and alcohol problems, aggression, you have poor impulse control, you just don't control your impulses, this could have all stemmed from trauma in childhood, whether it was sexual, neglect, abuse, parentified, whatever. You may be struggling with some depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. There could even be PTSD there and suicide, you know, suicidal thoughts, you know, or thoughts of self-harm. Um, in terms of relationships, there could be issues with attachment, attaching to other people, trusting other people, um, and even just understanding some of the ways that we interact socially. You know, there's so many um, nuances to how we interact socially, and you may really struggle with how to do that. Um, problems in romantic relationships, um, Difficulty controlling your emotions, you're kind of all over the place, um, even trouble recognizing your emotions. You may not even be able to identify feelings or emotions because you become so detached, you know, from those things. Um, also, um, increased sensitivity to stress, maybe the sense of worry, hopelessness, maybe you're a person that's always struggled with hopelessness. 
and maybe some even some helplessness, right? Like there can be learned helplessness that people will use as a coping mechanism for for a lot of trauma. They have learned to be helpless. And it's a way of getting a need met somehow. So that's some of the um, impacts that a person uh, could have experienced from childhood trauma. Renee, how does childhood sexual abuse affect a person's sexuality? So um, once again, I'm getting this from a great article. Um, So it talks about how many survivors end up having sexual difficulties, and it could be that they do become more promiscuous, right? Often what will happen for some people, especially if they're survivors of childhood sexual abuse, there can be this confusion with love and sex. And it could be from what somebody said to them, like, I'm only doing this to you because I love you, right? And if you're a little kid and you're five or six, you may believe that because you're five or six. You don't know. I mean, Children are egocentric until the age of about seven or eight. That means everything is from their perception. They don't have the the brain capacity to take on somebody else's perception, right? And they're going to be, they believe what we tell them because we're the adults. And so there can be those um, <clears throat> mixed signals where they do believe that, you know, that was a loving thing that happened to them. And some of the long-term effects, um, Because people are disassociative or maybe they're struggling with depression, they can't connect sexually with a partner maybe the way that they would want to. Um, You know, they may be having uh, a sexual encounter with their husband or whomever, and they are disassociating during that. You know, they may not even really be engaged in the sexual act. And then you'll have those people that may be on the other end where they feel like, um, you know, they avoid sex. They don't have interest in it. They may feel like it's disgusting. They may feel like they're disgusting. They may feel angry about it. They just can't, you know, have sexual intercourse maybe. Maybe it feels painful for them. Maybe their body remembers everything that happened to them, and so it feels painful and hurtful. And, you know, and we know that, as the sexual act is more than just the sex itself. It's a connection with, you know, the person that you love. It's, you know, the mind and the whole piece. And yet they're, they can be very disassociated from that part. And so the sexuality piece for people may become very um, dysfunctional. And you'll meet people that just don't have that desire to be sexual with other people. So... So we've heard an awful lot about just how hard on people childhood sexual abuse can be throughout the whole of their lives. Let's give them some hope, understanding this isn't a formal counseling session. It's not meant to uh, to take the place of having your own therapist. But what are some coping strategies for survivors, uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse? So, of course, I'm a counselor. I'm a huge proponent of counseling, right? Um, I just think there is such a benefit if you can get into a good counselor. And I always encourage people that if, if you go to a counselor and it didn't work out, if you didn't feel like you connected, try another one. You know, if I go to my medical doctor and I didn't like him and I didn't feel connected, I would go to a different one until I find the person that, that I'm a good fit with. And I think it's also about being honest in what you need, Right. So if you share with this counselor, like, um, 
I've experienced trauma, and you don't have to tell them your whole trauma story the first day because that could be hard, or you could. It's really up to you. But letting somebody know, like, I've experienced trauma and this is what I want to work on and maybe giving them a few symptoms, like if you've been experienced depression or anxiety or you have an eating disorder, that's so helpful because then that clinician, that counselor can also tell you, hey, you know, I don't really have a good background in trauma, but let me help you find somebody that does. Or, you know, I don't really um, know a lot about eating disorders, but I know somebody who uh, is qualified to help you in that. So it's really important that if you have the ability to obtain a counselor to find the person that's going to be best suited to you and your needs. Um, But if you're incarcerated and maybe you just don't have access to counseling, you know, there there are priests who visit, there's ministers who visit, there are people there that maybe you could talk to just to have somebody to kind of talk to about some of this stuff. And then some other things that I always encourage people to do is keeping a journal, which may be challenging as well. I don't know how well things can be protected you know, in a in a prison setting, uh, if you have a lock box where you can lock your things up, then you might feel safe writing in a journal. I mean, um, to write in a journal is such a beautiful therapeutic thing to do because you can get all your emotions and your feelings out on paper. And what I love about journaling is it's the person's individual writing style, right? And it's the words that they hear in their mind that's coming back through their ears and then they put it on the paper. So it's such a very individual piece of, of, of therapy. And it has such a beautiful, I mean, you're seeing your words and you can go back and write some things about how you felt or what you were thinking, even in what you're journaling. Right. But it does have to be protected. So I can tell you that one time I had a, a, a young girl I was working with and Her mom was famous for going through all her stuff. So I actually kept her journal locked in my office and she would come like 30 minutes early and she would go through and kind of write in her journal. Then we could talk about it. But then I I, um, locked it back up and that way nobody at home could go through it. So that's kind of the only downside. I want to make sure that you're safe with your journal writing, but it is such a great way to work through some of those thoughts and feelings that maybe you've been experiencing um, about your trauma situation. Um, also, ca- connecting with others, right, and nurturing relationships with other people. And these are going to be people who make you feel good about yourself. If your mom doesn't make you feel good about you, don't try to connect with your mom over <laughs> when you're doing trauma work because that's just going to make you feel worse about yourself or whatever your experience is. And certainly, if... The per, I mean, you would not want to try to create a nurturing, loving relationship with the person that abused you either, right? Because that's going to kind of keep you stuck in some of that trauma. Um, relaxation techniques, and this could be challenging, I know, in that prison setting where it's often loud, people are loud, uh, doors banging. It just, for me, it seems like constant noise. And, con- and with noise can become constant distraction, right? And so if you can do a few things for relaxation, you know, or meditation, <clears throat> really like sitting, you know, if you're in your cell, sit on the edge of your bed, plant your feet firmly, plant them hard on the floor so you feel firm. You're sitting there, 
but it's this firm stance, right? Straight back, you know, and do some deep breathing. And I tell people, you know, like put your hand on your stomach, you know, on your belly. And we do breathing wrong. So you want to deep when you breathe in through your nose, your belly should really push out is what it should do. And then when you um, exhale, it should come in and it feels kind of opposite. But that deep breathing is going to help calm you down. Right. And if you'll do it eight or 10 times, um, you'll feel the benefits because you're getting more oxygen to your head and you're going to feel this this calming. I will share with you, I'm not as good with meditation on a personal level. Deep breathing, I can do well, but meditation takes so much more concentration, right? I think it's helpful, you know, if I'm trying to meditate on the Word of God. That's when I can make meditation work for me, and I think it's because I need a different focus. Um, If I'm just doing meditation where I'm trying to clear my mind, it can be a little more challenging because things slip in, right? But if I can put in front of me a picture, you know, and for me, usually more than Jesus, it's actually Mary that helps me with meditation. And I will just literally picture her in front of me or I'll kind of like she's sitting beside me holding my hand. And I just go into this meditative state of calm. I'm asking her to help me be calm. And I want to do that for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes of just that pure meditation. And so that's a few things that you can do <clears throat> on the physical level. Some other things you can do is, you know, work on establishing some of those connections, maybe with some people like your children, um, a sister, a brother, somebody you feel safe with. Work on those connections to other people. Um, also, um, in terms of self-care, I love self-care. So it's like, what can you do physically? Um, I'm not sure, like with incarcerated people, what all you have uh, access to. But if you have a way to work out or or walk, those kind of things, that is so good for coping and resiliency and self-care. So getting in that exercise, um, it's helpful if if they allow yoga, I have no idea, you know, what's allowed and not not allowed, but some yoga moves can be very helpful because it stretches the body and it just helps you to your body just to feel really good. Um, also, you want to have a, a spiritual part of self-care. To me, that's probably one of the places that most people ignore is that spiritual part of self-care. And that can look like prayer. That can look like getting out in nature. Um, That can be reading some books that are God, Jesus driven, just to give you that peace and that comfort. Um, And even creating a routine for your prayer time, like morning prayers, evening prayers, getting into that routine can be so helpful when we're tapping in, you know, to the spiritual. And I love the whole part of getting into nature, which is going to be challenging if you're incarcerated. But if you have those times that you can get outside, you know, there's going to be a fence there and there are guards there and there's barbed wire or whatever happens to be at your particular prison. But there's also a blue sky ahead of you, hopefully. Not today. We got some clouds working, but right. But it's like noticing the breeze. It's noticing the sky and the sun and feeling that warmth. You know, if you can see trees beyond, I know where Tierney was uh, incarcerated across the street, there was a ranch, so she could see horses, right? And she loved horses, so that was perfect. And just watching the horses and how they would interact and, 
and just the the feeding and just little things like that can help you to really engage in nature and appreciate that and be spiritual with it, connect with it. It's a beautiful thing and it it can help you to be calm and help you to cope with some of those challenging things. And trying to have an, an a hopeful outlook, which I'm sure if you're incarcerated can be very challenging, but trying to be optimistic, you know, trying to in create visions of what you would want for the future, maybe even creating a vision board. If you have access to just pencil and paper, you could create a vision board for yourself. And that could be motivating and helping you to cope. Um, And if there's any groups that you can be a part of, you know, um, certainly in the military, they, they have a variety of, you know, mental health kind of groups that people could be a part of, but finding something that you can participate in, you know, in the prison population. Well, we want to thank Renee Brown, our Director of Counseling Services for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, and Deacon Ronnie Lostavica, myself, Father Harry Dean. We're both engaged in restorative justice ministry for the Diocese of Austin. We thank all of you for listening today. We have one more session on trauma and uh, sexual assault perpetrated against adults. That'll be our next session. For now, we ask you, Lord God, Your own son was delivered into the hands of the wicked, yet he prayed for his persecutors and overcame hatred with the blood of the cross. Relieve the sufferings of all those who have experienced sexual abuse and trauma and grant them peace of mind and a renewed faith in your protection and care through Christ our Lord. Amen.